Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science. For another week, this is a half an hour science show on your radio and um, we are very glad to be back with you, bringing you well, some of our favourite science with some of our favourite people, including Stu. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, Claire, and how are you? Yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Do you have some of your um, favourite science for us this week on the uh, show? Y- you, know I'm, you know I'm a fan of all things spacey, and I'm also a bit mm. of a comic book comic book nerd uh, in, uh-huh. in, in my past. And, you know, I, I just can't help looking at the, the the new space race is the only way to put it. It's, you know, uh, very, very rich, very, very white guys all racing to get into space to somehow make money out of doing it, presumably. I'm not exactly sure how that works yet. I mean, you know, government contracts and stuff, but I'm not sure mm-hmm. why why the race to space, except like the, you know, the 20th century space race, it's all about prestige. It's all about being first. It's all about getting up in there and doing your thing and showing yeah. off how, how good you are at everything. So I'm going to have a look at uh, some of the rich white men racing to get into space and why they might be doing it and why they want to beat each other to it. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Well, I cannot wait to hear about that um, and why they're not spending their money in better ways. But anyway, who am I to judge? Um, Also on the show, we have a very special guest this week. We have Ebony Kiroki, who is a PhD researcher at the University of Melbourne and does some fascinating work looking at the reproductive system of a species that I don't know if you've ever heard of before, a fat-tailed dunnart. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's some sort of marsupial, isn't it? It is. It's a tiny little carnivorous marsupial. They are incredibly cute. And Ebony is looking at them as a model for how marsupials reproduce, uh, how they their sex cells form. And then also, during her research, is looking at whether marsupials can undergo in vitro fertilization or IVF. Because, don't know if you knew this, I didn't before I talked to Ebony, that IVF has never been done for marsupials. So there you go. We had a very interesting chat about that that is coming up in the show later. So um, stick with us and on with the show. Now we joke around on the show uh, about how Science and technology is making the world uh, more like comic books and science fiction over recent years. And and one of the one of the things I, I like to joke around about is potential supervillains appearing as billionaires, or <laughs> is that billionaires who look like supervillain supervillains? It's 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 hard to be sure. Um, so may, maybe maybe they're even superheroes. I can't make up my mind whether Elon Musk is more like. 
Tony Stark, who's Marvel's Iron Man, or if he's more like Bruce Wayne, who is uh, Batman from the DC Comics. I'm, I'm not sure which one he might but... be. Or he's like Hank Scorpio. <laughs> from the I think Simpsons. we can all agree that Jeff Bezos is Lex Luthor. Well, he kind of fits the bill. It's not. It's not just the billions of dollars, you know, that's that draws a similarity. Um, Sorry, that's that's hundreds of billions of dollars. Well, absolutely for for Jeff Bezos and and some of these other um, people around. But like, if you look at Elon Musk, uh, some of his ideas sound that. You know that they're from the realms of the cartoons. They sound cartoonish. The idea of traveling at super high speeds between cities in vacuum tubes, for example, sounds like something from the Jetsons rather than uh, a serious engineering <laughs> suggestion that we could actually yeah. build. Well, um, who knew Jetsons were going to be the the bounty of engineering ideas for the twenty first century? Well, look, I still haven't got a robot made, so I'm, I'm <laughs> still. I think we're a bit behind. There's, there's also promises of new technology from Musk all the time. Sort of much more mundane things. The next big thing in batteries, he keeps promising all the time. Um, doesn't seem like it's any closer than the first time it was promised, which was years ago. They haven't, they haven't materialised. Uh, but I think, I his... think we shouldn't forget that he made his fortune really from PayPal, um, yeah, rather than from Tesla and. Hyperloop. So yeah, he's he's made his money out of getting a cut of all your tra- financial transactions, essentially. Yeah, yeah, which is you know that's a great way to make money, I, I guess. But it seems like he's spent all his money on on making cool toys. Um, he certainly shot all sorts of things into space, uh, including famously a Tesla car with a space-suited mannequin playing David Bowie on the car stereo, um, supposedly Honestly. to test the payload supposedly to test the payload of the rocket, but mainly because it was a cool thing to do, I think he thought, um, adding to the space junk floating around the Earth. I think probably, as you mentioned, Claire, the most super villainy billionaire candidate is Lex Luthor. I mean, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> um, he took he took a while back, he had a picture taken in a giant mecha suit. Did you see this? The giant robot mecha suit. Oh my um, goodness! Looking, oh no. Did he looking? Yeah, yeah, looking very, very super villain esque in in you know in a jumpsuit in this giant it's, mecha robot thing. It's just he's he's just full on embraced it, hasn't he? Oh yeah, he's leaning into it like nothing else. <laughs> um, but unlike Elon Musk, Bezos is promising to shoot himself into space. Great. I think his plan. <laughs> I think his plan is to come back though oh. after after a bit of an orbit uh or, or a little space flight he's going to come back so it's not a permanent um vacation but reading up on their respective vision space i had a look at elon musk elon musk thinks that humans have to become multi-planetary if we're to survive as a species due to possible cosmic events like asteroids and you know biological events like pandemics and he thinks that if we're on multiple planets we've got a better chance of survival as as a species um so uh he's looking at mars and the moon as human outposts to guarantee our survival into the far future now jeff bezos on the other hand has much more practical aims for space he's looking to move all industry especially dangerous industries off the earth and into space or onto the moon in order to protect the environment and the people who live in it which is you know, it's kind of a nice idea. But basically he's looking to make 
fly-in, fly-out workers leave the planet altogether and then come back. Although, ultimately, most of the labour is planned to be done by robots in the far future, of course, again. Now, this does sound a little bit super villainy. Uh, I think building an army of robots to manufacture things off the planet away from human influence. Um, I think but... um, I think the super for me the super villainy aspect is that um, he has enough money to toy around with these crazy ideas to actually do whatever he wants. Doesn't Hyde have enough money to um, give his employees decent um, working conditions or wages? But uh, yeah, somehow he's got so much money he can you know, have an army of robots on the moon. But, you know. I mean, you, you don't have to be really rich to be a regular villain, though, do you? No. Um, seriously, it's not necessarily a bad idea to, I think, this idea of moving manufacturing and, and heavy industry off the planet. But the amount of energy it would take to do that, the idea of, you know, um, sending raw materials up into space to be manufactured, then brought back down to it. It's a ridiculous amount of energy. And without some sort of huge leap in technology, um, that's not a real possibility. And and people sort of go, oh, well, what about if we get raw materials from space, we get asteroids and things like that? Well, we don't have that technology either. So it's still not really a viable solution to our... Um, you know, global industrial pollution problems that we're all sort of stuck with here. But in the meantime, Lex, uh, sorry, I mean, Jeff Bezos (laughs) has said he's going to take a space flight on July 20th after resigning from Amazon, which he uh, is resigning uh, in a couple of days. I think any day now he's supposed to be resigning as the CEO of Amazon, which is, of course, how he became the richest man in the world. Um, by selling books initially, but now he sells everything. Free delivery next day, blah, blah, whatever. Um, and, and, you know, made a ridiculous amount of profit during the pandemic because everyone was locked at home and they couldn't go out anywhere and buy things, so he sent it all to their house. Um, but look, Elon Musk hasn't even been into space, even though he has built a lot of spaceships. Uh, and Jeff Bezos seems to be doing it so he can be the first owner of a space company to go into space. So is, I mean, no one's gone into space yet because their rockets keep blowing up, right? The the Elon Musk's SpaceX have delivered crew to uh, the ISS and they have had successful crewed okay. space flights. So they're 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 on the they're on the cusp of, of of private space travel, really. But Elon's still a bit. Meh. I think I might just yeah, wait a few it, it, more, a few more ISS manned missions before I get in. He he seems he seems to be very happy to uh, you know field the questions at the press conferences, but not so happy to strap into the uh, to the launch <laughs> yeah. module. Um, but Jeff is Jeff is jumping in there. So the company owned by Bezos is called Blue Origin. This will be their first crewed flight of a spacecraft called New Shepard, which is named after Alan Shepard who was an Apollo astronaut and the first American in space. So Jeff's kind of positioning himself in that pioneering space there. Um, of course, as we started talking about, uh, started out talking about comic book storylines, there is a late contender and an older grey-haired man with a beard has <laughs> jumped in at the last minute to add a plot twist. Hank no. Pym, the original Ant-Man... No, wait, it's actually Richard Branson, British entrepreneur and possibly the first billionaire with designs on spaceflight. He launched Virgin Galactic in 2004. 
you know this is this is the old school um entrepreneurial billionaire space flight um they haven't done anything they haven't really got any launches up there yet even though virgin galactic went public as a company a couple of years ago so they're still around they're still going but Richard Branson is planning a trip on his Spaceship Two craft, which is named Unity, and he is, of course, launching on July 11th, which will be a clear nine days before Jeff Bezos. And, you know, it, it, it's hard to see this as anything other than a, uh, you know, a, a pissing contest, really, is, is mm. how I would put it down to. Um, it's it's, it's uh, a whole lot of... Um, you know, competition between rich old men. Um, mm. But despite launching nine days earlier, he probably won't beat him into space. And this is because Spaceship Two is not actually built to go into space. It skims along just inside the edge of the atmosphere at just under ninety kilometers up. Um, and space. So it's got a good. It's got a good name, Spaceship Two. Yeah, it's um. Yeah, it's 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 not not just a good name. I don't know. <laughs> so space begins at the Kármán line, which is a hundred kilometers above the average sea level. Spaceship Two can't go that high. It's designed for tourism. It's just to take people up on a trip and let them be weightless for about four minutes and then come back down. So Jeff Bezos will be the first billionaire spaceship owner to get into space by um, by all estimates. Uh, he's also though. And I think this is something um, to to take away from this story. He's also taking another space pioneer with him, someone who's been waiting to go into space since the middle of last century. So Mary Wallace Funk, or Wally Funk, trained in the Mercury program to demonstrate that women could pass the physical tests required to be in the space program in in NASA in in the 50s and 60s. None of the women who participated in the training were allowed to fly, that none of them actually got to go into space. Um, So now Wally is blasting off with Jeff Bezos on the 20th of July at age 82. So she's finally going to make it into space and into the record books as the oldest person ever to go into space. Wow. So she's... Yeah, it it is amazing, and you know, I guess uh, the 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 weight that she's had to endure to actually get a trip into space. Sometimes the trip to space isn't a race; it's a waiting game. Reproductive biology has come a long way in a short time, especially for placental mammals like humans, but also cows and sheep and all those agricultural animals. But when it comes to how we understand reproductive biology of marsupials, we know a little bit less, except for people like my guest today, Ebony Kiroki, who is PhD researcher from the University of Melbourne, who looks at this fascinating area of science with an incredibly adorable species, the fat-tailed dunnart. Ebony, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Please tell us, what is a fat-tailed dunnart? 
Well, Dunnards are these tiny little carnivorous marsupials and they're found pretty much all across Australia. They're about the size of a mouse and they look very similar to mice as well. But they are, yeah, they're marsupials. So they're they're kind of in the same group as um, koalas and kangaroos and a, a lot of our other really iconic Australian species. Are they a bit like antichinus? Yeah, yeah, they, they look very similar to antichinus too, with the little cute little noses. In live in any any particular area? They live in a pretty wide a variety of, of habitats, if you will. So they love lands, they like kind of deserts and sort of woody places. Yeah, but they're not super fussy. Right. Um, and I imagine the way that you can differentiate them from, uh, you know, your regular other sorts of placental mice. Do they have a fat tail? They do. They do. The better that they're eaten, the fatter that their tail gets. So. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's where they store their fat, is it? Yeah. Now, you are studying how marsupials, and in particular uh, fat-tailed dunnarts, uh, form their sex cells. Uh, what makes these fat-tailed dunnarts so such a um, such a good species to study? That's a really good question um, because in the past, a lot of this work on development for marsupials and looking at sex cells and looking at reproduction, we've used the Tamar wallaby as a model. And we have learned some like really fascinating and really, really important information from using um, from using wallabies and looking at how they you know reproduce develop all that kind of stuff but now there are you know our lab and sort of a handful of other labs are across across Australia are kind of making a shift and, and starting to look at using the Dunnart instead because I mean first of all they're very very small <laughs> which logistically is a lot easier to to handle than a, than a wallaby um, on top of that, they have really easy husbandry requirements, so they're very easy to keep mm. in um, colonies and they have lots and lots of babies at a time. Mm. Most uh, most dunnart species can have between, you know, I think seven and ten babies per litter. They breed all year round. So, yeah, and, and they're, they're easy to handle. So instead of uh, in comparison to a wallaby, which only has one baby a year, you know, you get a bigger sample size. That all makes perfect sense. And, and you're looking in particular at their sex cells. What, what sort of research have, have you done already and what, what did you find? So in my master's project, I was basically just looking to define when the testis or an ovary became that structure. Mm. So in all mammals, um, regardless of what group they're from, testis and ovary start as the same structure so they look exactly the same whether the animal is going to be a a boy or a girl um, if you want to call it that (laughs) but it's not until they get sort of special genetic cues and hormonal signals depending on what species it it is that that indifferent structure can go either down a testis pathway or an ovary pathway Um, so I looked at defining what time that that happens in in the Dunnart. And is that um, is that quite different to what to the times that placental mammals like humans, the time that that happens? Yeah, in, in placental mammals like humans, this process happens while the baby is still in the womb. Um, so because placental mammals that that group is defined by having a really long period of gestation. So the baby's inside the mother's tummy for a lot longer than it is in marsupials. 
So the fat tail donna actually only is pregnant for about 13 days, which is one of the shortest pregnancies of, of all marsupials. Oh, how lovely. I'm, <laughs> must, <Yeah>. be lovely. <laughs> must be nice. <laughs> yeah, that also means that their babies are born very underdeveloped. So in most case, or in all cases, I, I think, this process of having this structure become either a testis or, or an ovary, it happens after birth. So we, if you were to look at a, a what we call a gonad of a newborn marsupial, you wouldn't be able to tell whether it was a boy or a girl. Mm-hmm. Can I also ask a question? How big are they when they're born? Very, very tiny. They're about the size of a grain of rice, maybe smaller. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Very um, anything like <laughs> grain of rice. <laughs> and in your research, um, did you any other conclusions that you came to in your research? Yeah, I mean, we found some pretty, I think it's, I get very caught up in telling this story, um, but we set out just to define this timing. So we we kind of expected it to happen around, you know, five days after birth for it all to begin, because based on the other species that we've studied and the development of newborn donuts, we thought that that would happen a little bit later. But what was really interesting to us is that no matter what species of marsupial, whether it's a Tamar wallaby, which are born after a 26-day gestation, so they're a little bit more developed, or a dunnart, it's pretty consistently happening about two days after birth. So, so that was interesting to us. Now, another fascinating part of your research that you're now doing with your PhD is looking at IVF for marsupials, in vitro fertilization of marsupials. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Has has it Has it ever been done before? You certainly don't hear about it much. No. Well, it has been only ever successful in an American marsupial. And even in saying that, there hasn't been a lot of work done in that space since like the early 2000s. But IVF has never, ever been done in an Australian marsupial species before. Wow. So is your research going to be looking at ways to do that successfully? Um, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we get a couple of steps closer to, you know, cracking or adding more pieces to the puzzle, so to speak. Why is it such a challenge? Well, the way that most abuse develop is, is very different. Um, so they're separated in an evolutionary time scale from by about 180 million years from placental mammals. And so in that amount of time, there have been some, some differences in development that have popped up here and there. And so one of the major challenges that we see is when you put sperm and egg in a, in a dish together, you go, go, please do your thing. They just don't want, they don't want to interact. They don't really want to bar of each other. It seems kind of intuitive to me. It does. Yeah, it does. You're like, come on, just play some, you know, Marvin Gaye or something. And <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's going to be one of your experiments. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it's just playing a bunch of different music yeah. to my to my culture dishes. But no, the reason that we think, oh, the thing that we think is the biggest roadblock to letting this happen is that sperm need to undergo a number of uh, biological, physiological changes before it can interact with the egg. And so, for placental for placental mammals, sorry, we have figured out what some of the of these changes are, and it's a lot to do with the female reproductive tract. So something within like the fluid inside the uterus or inside the fallopian tubes causes the sperm to to change somehow 
for marsupials, some of those changes are visible, so they, they change their shape, but those visible changes alone aren't enough to let it uh, penetrate or interact with the egg. Wow. So, yeah, there's been some research that started in my lab looking at what's actually in that uterine fluid. Um, and so hopefully my, my contribution will be maybe picking out some of those factors that look interesting and we'll work together to yeah find the ones that causes a change to happen wow so you'll have the first artificial marsupial fallopian environment i mean hopefully hopefully <laughs> yes there have been you know some research that's gotten that's gotten close or have sort of done bits and pieces like they've caused the sperm to change shape but it still would interact with an egg or They've been able to take a very early embryo, for example, and culture that. But it's just, it's never been done from, you know, from start to finish, from sperm makes egg to birth of an animal. And so hopefully if we can't get there, we'll at least get a couple of steps closer. Now, um, one question I have to ask is, why is this so important? Why do we need to um, look at uh, IVF for marsupials? Mm -hmm. As we know... I mean, in Australia in particular, in particular, but um, globally, we are facing another extinction crisis. We are unfortunately losing animals and losing species every day due to a bunch of different pressures. And so a lot of our really iconic Australian marsupials are endangered, critically endangered, or at least threatened. Um, so having these kind of assisted reproductive technologies under our belt it, it might actually help us to save some of those species or at least preserve um, some of the genetic diversity that we have at the moment. Um, an option in the future to be able to reintroduce some new animals into existing populations. So we hope that we, that they would have some conservation benefits as well as research benefits. Another tool in our toolbox then for uh, ways to fight extinction in Australia. Yeah, we hope so. Well, Ebony, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Um, good luck with the PhD research. Um, it was incredible to hear about marsupial reproduction as a whole and, of course, um, to hear more about the fat-tailed dunnarts. Um, thank you again. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or you can find us wherever you found us today again next week when Claire, Stu and Chris get lost in science.
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.